0: Good morning. Once again, friends, I am once again just so grateful for the honor and privilege it is to come under the life-giving authority of God's holy word with you, uh, as we do now this morning, and would ask uh, that we turn together once again to Luke's gospel to pick up where we left off in the Lord's providence last time uh, we were uh, together in this way. I'd like us to um, focus uh, our attention in Luke's gospel in chapter 7 and we pick up our reading with verse 18 and we'll read through to verse 35. It is printed for you in your bulletin in case that's helpful. Uh, Luke chapter 7 from verse 18 to verse 35. Now friends, will let us hear these words. For what they are, not merely the words of any man, but the words of the living God. Let us hear him. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen. Please let us pray. Make much of yourself among us by your most holy spirit we pray our father and our god as this word which is your word having been read is now offered to your people in and through the lord jesus christ of whom it speaks may he become ever more precious in our eyes and may we know more truly than ever how our life is hidden in him and we pray this in his name. Amen. If you believe what you like in the Bible, and reject what you don't like, it is not the Bible you believe, but yourself. Doubt. It packs a punch, doesn't it? Those are the words of the most influential and important theologian in the history of the church, Augustine of Hippo, who was dealing with this very phenomenon in his own day. But the reason it has been so often quoted and repeated in the more than 1500 since 1500 years since is because this is a message for every day and for every era and for every culture but boy does it pack a punch if you believe what you like in the bible and reject what you don't like it isn't the bible you believe but yourself what does that have to do with luke 7 Well, there's a lot going on in Luke 7, a lot that would be easily defensible uh, for preoccupying our attention, not just today, but for many weeks to come. There's extraordinary, rich, thoughtful movements and theology and teaching and mysteries. Uh, There's a great deal here that is instructive for how to read the Bible itself, in fact. How the New Testament relates to the old. How Christ relates to both. Who are his disciples and who are not. There's a great deal going on. There's a lot of content here. But I would ask us this morning to focus on the occasion for all of this. Think way back to Genesis chapter 15. Do you remember the story of God putting Abram Abraham into a kind of a death-like mode of deep sleep. And then he uh, passes through the severed pieces of all of those ritual animals that are outlined in Leviticus. He, he tears apart oxen and birds and so on, and he, he, as a fire pot, passes through the pieces. Remember that ritual scene, that, that, that thing God does that's so memorable in Genesis 15? We could just think about those pieces, those fire pots, and the movement, and the ritual, and, and get a great deal out of that. But the whole thing makes the sense it does because of what occasioned it. What occasioned that scene? A question Abram asked. Well, how do I know that what you've promised me you're going to do? How am I going to know? And God does not give Abram a long theology lesson. He does something. I want us to note the occasion of Luke 7. It's actually right there in verse 20, verse 19, and then again in verse 20. Jesus has done all these wonderful things, including, as we noted last time, raising from the dead a widow's, a widow's son. And the disciples of John the Baptist take all of these reports into view, and they bring them to their master, John. And John takes two of his disciples aside because of, undoubtedly, because of the law's um, uh, regulation, its requirement, its instruction uh, on how to verify a report, is with two witnesses. And he takes these two aside because he needs something verified. He needs the most important thing of all, verified. He needs to know something for certain that, in fact, his whole life in ministry have been about, and will completely change his life, depending on the answer. He gets these two disciples, brings them to himself, sends them to the Lord, and asks a very Abraham-like question: "Are you the one, or is there someone else coming? How do I know you're the one?" I hear the reports, I know what's going on, Uh, these these all sound like very, very familiar things. How do I know? And then what Jesus does in response is very much like the God of Abram. He does something. We read, in that hour, verse 21, Jesus then heals. He doesn't give a theology lesson to John. He doesn't say, here are all the reasons you need to give John. He he turns from the two. He heals in that hour, very many. And then after he has done this, he turns back to those two and says, now go tell John what you saw and heard. What did you see? What did you hear? These are the things you saw and heard. You you saw blind receiving sight. You saw the lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing. Dead are raised up. Uh, The poor have good news preached to them. You've seen and you've heard these things. Just go tell John that. And then verse 23 is, if we can call it that now, the Augustinian punch in the gut. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's something Jesus is saying to John specifically about John specifically. It's a true statement in general, but this is the last part of what he wants these two to tell John in answer to his question, and the one here is a singular. It's John himself who is in view. Blessed is the one, are you this one, John? will not be offended by me. Now, why would John the Baptist be offended or troubled by Jesus? Well, let's take one big step back and exhale, shall we? What in the world is going on here? John's question in verse 19, and then repeated by his two disciples in verse 20, uh, it's occasioned predictably a whole lot of scholarly speculation. What? What is it that might be prompting John to ask this question. It's a question that, it's a question that is a very thinly veiled expression of, of some doubt, of some uncertainty. What could possibly lead John the Baptist to be unsure that this is the one? And many proposals have been put forward. I will not bore you with them. I'll suggest instead that for a number of reasons, there seems to be one chief reason, if not the sole reason, that John was unsure. And friends, this morning, I want us to hear John's uncertainty, even his wobbling, as something all of us face, as the kind of doubt common to Christians, and one which the Christ of the Gospel meets. The last time we saw John in Luke's Gospel was back when we had this remarkable introduction to him in chapter 3. Of course, we first introduced him in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, who, like David of old, upon encountering the uh, presence of the Ark of the Covenant getting close to the gates of Jerusalem, uh, like David of old, rejoicing, as it were, dancing before the Lord with all his might, Uh, here comes John the Baptist in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, getting close to Mary, in whose womb is Jesus. And as they get near, John starts dancing, leaping in the womb of his mother Mary upon the encounter with the true temple, the true tabernacle, the true dwelling of God with man. That was our first introduction in Luke's Gospel to this marvel who is John the Baptist. But then in chapter 3 we learn of his special, unique vocation, his calling to be the way preparer, to be the forerunner who, by his very life as well as his uh, message in words, would pave the way for the arrival of that very same God with man, the Messiah of promise. And in chapter 3, here is John the Baptist out there in the wilderness, this strange creature of a man Uh, who is out there uh, eating locusts and honey, denying all creaturely comforts, wandering from place to place, preaching a message. Now, we ought to know, listen to what that message was. In Luke 3, we're not being told, this is what John preached one day. Here are the words. No, we're being given a, a characteristic snapshot. Here's the kind of thing John was always saying Throughout his ministry. So, what we have here is something John said all the time. What was it John said all the time? He's walking around and he's warning people about the urgency of their repentance. The Lord is drawing near, he's coming, he's coming and he's going to judge. So make sure you get into the mode of repentance now before you lose your opportunity. Remember the imagery? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Already for some people, we're struggling a little bit with the Bible we want to believe and the Bible that actually is. The Jesus that we want to think of and believe in and the Jesus who actually is. And we're wrestling already with Augustine's warning. Make sure it's the Bible and the Christ you believe, not yourself. That's a hard message. That's a hard message. It's clearly a message of judgment coming, right? Right? And then from Luke 3 to Luke 7, Jesus is doing all kinds of things and saying all kinds of things. Preaching the coming of the kingdom in himself. And as we hear here in Luke 7, the report to go back to that same John is all about Jesus as healer. And what Jesus tells these disciples of John to to tell their, their master, their teacher... Is explicitly drawn from all kinds of things Isaiah's prophecy, in particular, said to look for to know the Messiah has come. He didn't pull this out of of thin air. Jesus is referring to what John the Baptist is always preaching in the wilderness. John the Baptist is constantly preaching Isaiah. That's where he gets his imagery of judgment. And so Jesus pulls from that same Isaiah those other things that announce the coming of the Messiah. And he says, tell him this is what's happening. He knows his Isaiah. He'll know what it means. Which is great, except there's one thing missing. In this Galilean phase of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is the healer. And he goes everywhere healing. And it appears John is excited, moved, intrigued at least, pretty confident this must be the one, as in the kingdom is inaugurated, he has come in this Messiah, who is Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, my cousin, But there's something missing. Where's the winnowing fork? Where's the judgment? Where's the message of judgment? Where's the act of judgment? Everything else is in place, but this is missing. Given what Luke's uh, saying John's message was in the wilderness, And what Luke has said Jesus has been doing. And then the message he sends to John about what he has been doing. This is the only area of no overlap. Everything else is in place. Now before we think this is just a matter of theology for John, am I reading Isaiah correctly? What Luke wants us to notice is that John's question is not just John's. This is the question the Pharisees are wrestling with. The scribes are wrestling with. The crowds are wrestling with. You see, this is a time when it's not just academic, but an everyday, real-life question. When is God going to act to deliver us from all this madness? These are people who have for so long suffered under a hostile regime politically, who have been outsiders culturally, who have been largely without temple, priest, land. These are people who have been waiting and waiting and waiting some more for the Messiah to come who, like Isaiah says, is going to come with healing and come with judgment. And Jesus has come. But I only see part of the picture. Maybe he is not who he says he is. In my service over the years as a pastor... In your lives, undoubtedly, as husbands and wives, as fathers, as mothers, as brothers and sisters, friends to one another. Can I say that the most regular, the most standard difficulty that Christians appear to face in the ordinary Christian life, is in one way or another disappointment with God. But if I may, with your forbearance, allow the punch in the gut once more, it tends to be disappointment with God that is based on expecting of God something he never promised. I'm suffering terribly, Pastor. Chronic illness. And I'm starting to wonder if God cares for me at all. I've just lost my job, or I did not get that anticipated and frankly needed promotion. I've been forced out of my apartment, forced out of my home. My children have apostatized. My friends have run off to a false religion. Uh, my, my world is falling, around, falling apart around me. I'm watching uh, my political leaders and my communal leaders run off the deep end in their ideologies and uh, ethical uh, um, wickedness, their immorality. And it makes my faith wobble. Why would my mom and my dad have to die when I'm so young? Why would my son, my daughter have to die when they're so young? Does God really care? Is he really who he says he is? And the problem is not the wrestling with suffering at all. But the, 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 the stinging laser-sharp question Jesus is asking is, okay, John, so you're not sure because the judgment element isn't here visible yet. And you thought I was here, among other things, to be sure, to deliver the Jews from such oppression, as everyone around you also is tacitly assuming and hoping. And you don't see that yet. So I'm not the Messiah you thought you wanted. I'm saying I'm the Messiah you need. Are you offended by the real me? Are you offended by the real Jesus? Who does not minister on your terms? Who never in fact promised that the judgment... And the healing would be coincident in your immediate experience? And would look exactly the way you thought it should look? In the context in which you looked for it? And on your timetable? Are you concluding that I must not be who I think, who I say I am because you don't yet see the whole picture, you only see a good bit of it? And we must not run after John here. Jesus will not allow it. In this very passage, he says to the crowds Look, the problem is not John, John is the greatest of the prophets. No one born of women, a very curious expression, especially coming through the Greek. It's a Hebraism, but nobody ever born of a woman is greater than John in terms of proximity, nearness, to the dawning of the kingdom of God. He's the last and the greatest. It's not a problem with John. This is an ordinary, normal question to wrestle with. He goes on to say Jesus does, even a child born in the reality of that kingdom is even greater than John. To reinforce, it is true that with him comes the kingdom hoped for. But it's not a problem with John, it's a problem with all of us. And that's why Luke tells us, like he's told us before, that the story is not actually about John. It's about you and me. And how does he do this? He does this in the way he did before. He tells us how as soon as he says this to John's two disciples, he turns to the crowds and then he asks the same question in different wording. All right, now all of you who have watched this little interaction, all of you who have been standing around watching me talk to John's two disciples and basically basically press the matter with John that I am the Messiah he needs if and if he, even if it, I'm not exactly the, the Messiah he was looking for right now on his terms. Now you've watched this happen. Maybe you've been a little uncomfortable for those two disciples who have to go back to John and give such a, such a stinging but very... A clear message. Don't think you're let off the hook. Jesus turns now to the crowds and say, now with respect to John, all of you out here who were baptized by John, which is most of the crowds uh, on this occasion, all of you who are baptized by John, who, who have a vested interest in my answer to John's question, all of you, what was it you, you went out there to see anyway when you went to John? What a curious question. Jesus, you'll notice, asks it three times which in the Old Testament is a hugely significant thing. Do you remember how at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Well, yes, I do. Do you love me? No, really, I do. Do you love me? <sighs> yes. Three times. He asks you, he asks me now in Luke 7, So what were you looking for? when you went to john in the wilderness were you looking he says firstly uh, were you looking for someone what did you go out to see were you looking for someone who's a reed shaken by the wind there's a very It's an image for a a very weak person, in fact, uh, in the uh, Greek it suggests effeminacy, a man who doesn't seem to be a man at all, someone who is weak rather than a man of resolve, a man of strength, a man of deliberateness, a man of conviction and principle. Did you go out there to see someone who was easily tossed here and there, a man of no principle, easily budging back and forth, never really stable? No, you don't go out there to see someone like that. You didn't go out there because that was what drew you to the strange man with the strange message in the wilderness. So what did you go out there for, second time he asked the question? Did you go out there in order to uh, see a man dressed in soft clothing? Someone who is impressive because of his uh, apparent and visible splendor and wealth? No, you have that all the time in the king's palaces and in your courtyard. You can just go into town to see that. You didn't go to see someone who is impressive, visibly impressive, in terms of beauty and and luxury. That wasn't the spectacle. You didn't go out there for glamour. Third time, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah. Yes. A prophet. And that's why you were baptized by him in the baptism of repentance. And this leads ultimately... To the exclamation point of this whole story. Because now he says, yes, and this is why you were baptized. And incidentally, it's why they were not. Talking about the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers. Who, Luke tells us, rejected the purpose of God for themselves. It leads Jesus to this really interesting little story. What then am I going to compare the people of my time, of this generation, to? He settles on this image, like children. Now, Jesus is not against children. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus welcomes the little children. Jesus wants us to baptize the little children. Jesus cares for them as his own. That's not in question. What does he mean by this? Well, he accents something that is quite common for very young children. Fickleness. Fickleness. To what am I going to compare this generation? It's a fickle people. How are they fickle? Well, they're like children in the marketplace and then singing this song, this chant to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We, we sang a dirge and you did not weep. Basically, you're to imagine these children in a public square chanting this back and forth to each other, a story of all of their requests going unanswered, even though those quests are changing back and forth. First they want this, then they want that. So, so Jesus brings the point home. He says, this is why I'm saying this about you. You Pharisees and scribes especially who refuse the baptism of John saying that's not the Messiah we're looking for. You crowds to the extent, you're not sure about me because you don't yet see me helping you with your bank account, helping you with your medical situation, helping you with your political oppression, helping with your communal chaos. You're not sure about me yet because you don't have those benefits yet. He says, when John the Baptist came without eating bread, not eating bread, not drinking wine, you said, well, isn't he odd? Isn't he worse than odd? He has a demon. Because we know eating bread and drinking wine, this is a sign of a sane, ordinary, humane individual. Someone you can trust. Someone like us. Someone we can hear. Someone we can follow. But this guy, he's out there doing strange things. He won't even eat bread. He won't even drink wine. He's eating locusts and honey. This very dark, negative message. He's just not easy to be around. You rejected him. You said, yeah, his oddness is because he's demon-possessed. But then, the Son of Man came. And he came in the exact opposite mode. He came, Jesus says, eating bread and drinking wine. In fact, so much so that he's now being accused of being a drunkard. And he comes eating bread and drinking wine with the very people that John the Baptist and others are kind of expecting, are about to know, The immediate heat of falling fire and brimstone. Where is the judgment falling? Where is the winnowing fork? There's no winnowing fork. There's a dinner fork in his hand. And he's eating. There's not a cup of wrath. There's a cup of good wine in his hand. Where's the judgment? I came to find a man, a a deliverer, from my personal needs. And he's come to do something that's not quite on my terms. But they're fickle because they rejected John for one thing. Jesus comes looking exactly the opposite and they reject him as well. And Jesus calls them out as incapable of being satisfied. Incapable of being helped. But verse 35 becomes the very, very brief word of thrilling hope and promise. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. What does this mean? Well, quite simply, wisdom is a, is a kind of a catch-all term right here for being well-related to the God and the gospel which are rather than the counterfeits which aren't. And when we are rightly related to the God and the gospel that are, it will bear its fruit. And that fruit will point to the genuine article as genuine. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, The Apostles Paul and Peter and John in a variety of ways detail how the ordinary faithfulness of an imperfect but believing baptized people, the church, especially in the mode of mysterious suffering, bears witness to the truth of Lord Jesus Christ. A friend, that's hard. It's really hard. And sometimes it's, it's too hard to speak of. When it's your wife or your husband, your son or your daughter on death's door, it's, it's really hard. Uh, when it's your friend, your loved one, uh, when it's the prospects of people you care for that are being affected, when it's, when it's your country and your city, it can be really hard. H- have you never been in the situation I sometimes have been in? Where I'm, I'm watching something on TV or I'm reading something in the news. So, so flagrantly wicked in defiance of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the holy God of heaven, with whom we all have to do, flagrant defiance of the holiness and glory of his character and ways. That I I sometimes lean back in my chair and look out the window and look up any moment, any moment, fire and brimstone, Surely, surely now. But in the words of a writer who was thoughtfully reflecting on some Christian poetry by Gerard Manley Hopkins, his poem on patience in particular, perhaps God is more patient than we are. Not that he doesn't care, Not that he is not there, but he is more patient than we are. Because when the fire falls, and Jesus has assured us it shall, when the final judgment comes, and it certainly will, then too will end the prospect of any unbeliever being converted to the kingdom of life and light then will come their full and certain end, and God's patience will have ended, righteously, but really. And until then, you think you have a lot to put up with? The Lord is patient. And the scandal, or if you will, the challenge, the deep, deep challenge of the gospel, for every one of us, maybe at this time, especially when there is so very, very much wrong with the world as it is. Our challenge is whether we are going to wobble or not in our by faith and not sight embrace of the Jesus who is. Who is, as it were, still in the work of healing until he brings into view the final judgment. His cross confirms that final judgment. His ministry here in Luke before that cross confirms his patience. He invites John into the real world of liberty, which is service to that king as he really is, and nothing else. He invites the crowds into the real world of the real Christ and not the readily found counterfeits that will promise you all kinds of things if you become a Christian that are not true because God never promised to make you rich. He never promised to make you healthy in this life. He never promised to fix your marriage on your timetable and on your terms he has promised that what he says indeed in his son, he means. And when we measure him by what he has actually said, this God never, ever, ever fails. Do not be offended by him. Bow the knee instead. For with the real Lord alone, there is life and there is peace. Let us pray. We pray, our Heavenly Father and our God, that though it may be painful to do so, you would humble us every moment and every day to embrace by faith the real Lord Jesus Christ. And grant to us that faith, not sight, which brings glory to him and is the fruit of true wisdom in him. And protect and guard us all, we pray at heart, from the many ways in which we might dismiss with pious platitudes what is in fact our disappointment with you. And instead, lead us in confidence over your word and work, so that we will know more and more fully the liberty of service to Christ, on his terms and in his way, which we seek in his name. Amen. We come now to the Supper of the Real Messiah. And I would like us not to miss today how the Supper of the Real Messiah sounds a lot like the Real Messiah of Luke 7. What was it that distinguished Jesus from John the Baptist that the Pharisees were not to miss? He came eating bread and drinking wine. And in so doing, put on display that that bread and wine mode of his ministry is a ministry of healing for all who would come to him in faith. The healing that lasts, that goes all the way down, that raises from the dead. Even as this table, about, of which we are about to partake, reminds us of that Galilean phase of Jesus' ministry then, it also confirms for us the Jerusalemite phase of that ministry. The judgment is coming because this is the bread and the wine of a crucified Messiah who died so that death might die in him and that death might die in him for those who are his. So to be outside of him is certainly to face Here is a table when the Jesus who patiently, lovingly heals is preached. And at this same table, the Jesus who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who will put all things right, is preached as well. Not because Jesus is a multiple personality situation, but because this is the whole Christ of the gospel. And we do not pick and choose the one we like. We either believe in the Lord Jesus as he really is, or we only believe ourselves. This table preaches the whole Christ. And we are invited to this table if we belong to the whole Christ. The words of institution which bring us to this table with joy. And with confidence, we remember in the form of Mark's gospel this morning, that as Jesus and his disciples were eating, he took bread, and after he blessed it and broke it, he gave it to his disciples and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Friends, I would direct your attention to what is printed in your bulletin regarding who may participate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a visible picture of God's mercy to us. The bread and wine represent the body and blood of Jesus, who willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The supper is a way in which we have fellowship with the risen Christ and with his people. Christ the King's session invites to the Lord's table all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and are members of an evangelical church. Those who are unable to drink wine for reasons of age, health, or conscience may drink the grape juice in the cups at the center of each tray. This is the table of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Friends, I urge us all to take that seriously. And if you are not, in fact, a member of Christ, enjoying Trinitarian baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the context of his faithful church who exercises oversight over you for your good And if you are not yourself walking in the mode of believing repentance and repentant faith, I would ask you not to partake in order not to bring shame rather than praise to the name of Christ who is preached here. But even if that is your situation, would you note as well the prayers one might offer uh, when not taking communion also printed, I think, helpfully in the bulletin. A prayer of repentance and faith. A prayer for those struggling with persistent sin. A prayer for those searching for the truth. And yet may I also remind us, friends, that the supper is for weak Christians. The supper is for those who sometimes wobble and doubt. It is a means of grace for those who know they need grace. And know they are not yet all that they are called to be. It is not for those who care nothing for the Lord or for his word and for his obedience. It is for those who care for him and for his ways, but know that we are sinners and much in need of strength only he can give. And so friends, I would encourage you with the truth that even the weakest faith, when it is real faith, unites to the same Christ that the strongest faith does and that he is here to serve. In terms of what he knows you truly need. To that end, let us pray that the Lord would bless our partaking of his sacred meal. Ever blessed.